My name is Cease Caldwell, and I'm an alcoholic. I am not from Alberta, Canada. I'm from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, Canada. <laughs> there is a great difference. I want you to know that. <laughs> Very grateful to be here. Matter of fact, I'm grateful to be anywhere. But uh, it says on the podium to talk slow. My God, <laughs> we haven't got time to talk slow after all those announcements. <laughs> Are you sure there's something you haven't missed? <laughs> but talking about talking slow, it reminds me of a story <laughs> about a church that was trying to raise some money, and they decided to sell Bibles. And they, the whole congregation went out with a bunch of Bibles to sell them, and one lady sold ten, another one sold twelve, one sold six... One guy come in and he sold 143 Bibles. Man, oh man, the minister grabbed everybody and brought them in there, the whole congregation. And he said to them, how did you sell 143 Bibles? And he said, well, it was like this. I would walk up to the door and I would ring the door bell. When they came to the door, I would say, I am selling Bibles. Would you like to buy one? Or would you sooner that I read it to you? <laughs> she could even keep up with me. <laughs> hey, this is really a convention. Would you mind telling the speaker, if you ever you see him, I don't know what his name was, the guy that talked last night, personal friend of mine. <laughs> Would you tell him that I don't miss him? <laughs> you know, he comes to a place to speak, not to listen, because obviously he's gone. <laughs> but I'm sending a tape to him at this talk. <laughs> I've been watching the committee, and golly, you've got a real committee here, past and present. I've heard the one guy that's going out, you know, he gave his, his going away deal 17 times already. And, uh, if he's not here tomorrow morning, I'll give it, because I know it. <laughs> he, he, he said he's from Louisiana. I wish he'd go back, so I don't have to hear him. <laughs> <laughs> when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, they told me that I had to be honest. <laughs> and uh, I've tried to be honest. But sometimes, you know, we do things that are just a little bit dishonest. I mean, you know, every one of us, we're trying to be honest. And that reminds me of another story. <laughs> you know, this, this guy... <laughs> <laughs> 
running a very successful business, and he hired a a man that was mute and for a bookkeeper. And the business was going along pretty good, but then the guy got thinking, well, I never talked to this man. You know, wonder is he honest? <laughs> so he checked the books over every night, and he found out he was $50,000 missing. So he, he wondered, well, how can I do this? How can I talk to this man? So he went and got, he had a friend, like our good lady over here, that could do sign language. And he went and got him, and he said, he brought the fellow in, and he said, ask him where my $50,000 is. And so the guy went, you know, where my $50,000. <laughs> and the guy come back and says, I don't know. <laughs> so the guy said, ask him again. So he said, I hope I'm not swearing, but he, <laughs> he said, ask, tell him I want to know where my $50,000 is. And the guy comes back and says, I don't know. So the guy pulled out a gun and he put it on the table and he said, tell him that he if he doesn't tell me, I'm going to shoot him. So he said, if you don't tell him, he's going to shoot you. And the guy comes back and he says, don't know. So the guy put the gun right up to the guy's temple and says, tell him he's got 30 seconds. And if you don't tell us, tell him, he's history. And the guy said, he's, he's going to shoot you in 30 seconds if you don't tell him. The guy come back and he says, it's at a tin can underneath the old oak tree in my backyard. And the guy said, what'd he say? He said, he doesn't know. <laughs> So you see, uh, we can become dishonest just in a moment. <laughs> and I've been watching the committee, as I said before, before I start talking about the guy from Louisiana. I, uh, I've been watching them, and they've been get, getting along really well. Maybe they've had some fights behind the scenes, I don't know, but, it, but it's good to see a committee getting along, you know, and walking in unity like they talked about at the tradition meeting today that... 1,400 of you people weren't here. And uh, it was on unity. And I believe that's, you know, something about the second legacy. I don't know. I heard that. But uh, anyway, uh, this reminds me of a story, too. This, uh, this fellow... And I was privileged by to be driven around the golf courses this afternoon by Todd. And thanks a lot, Todd. That was great. And thanks, Chris, for driving me the rest of the time. I mean, these, these two guys did a real job. And uh, anyway, this guy was sitting in a in a clubhouse, and he was he, he was just sitting all by himself. And, and finally, he said, "Oh God!" And a voice came down and said, "Yeah, what's the trouble?" He looked up and said, "That you, God?" And God says, "Yeah, that's me. What's the trouble?" And he said, "I can't putt." Oh, God, just, you know, keep your head down and swing it, the old putter like the pendulum little clock, and I'm sure everything will be all right. So while he had him on the on the line, he uh, he thought, well, I better have a little conversation with him. 
So he said, uh, tell me, God, do they have a golf course up in heaven? And God said, just a second, I'll check. And he went away and he come back and he said, I got some good news and some bad news. First of all, he said, for the good news, they've got the most beautiful golf course I've ever seen. The golfer said, what can be the bad news? He said, your tee-off time is 10 after 8 tomorrow morning. <laughs> Did I say it too fast? You're not laughing. <laughs> So anyway, you see, uh, we never know when our tea-off time is going to be, so, uh, you know, let's be kind to each other and go to tradition meetings. <laughs> I came to Alcoholics Anonymous January the 16th, 1952. And uh, I was 27 years old, and I thought that, uh, you know, it was the end of the world. But I, I found out in this book called Alcoholics Anonymous why I got here. In a doctor's opinion, it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that after a while they admit it is injurious, they admit it is injurious, they cannot after time differentiate the truth from the false. To them their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. And then it says they are restless, irritable, and discontented. I was, I had never had a drink. I was 16 years old, and I became restless, irritable, and discontented. I was a, wanted to be a good athlete, and I was a good athlete. And, but when I was 16, I, I became a little, had a little problem with discipline <laughs> in my home had a little dis problem with the discipline in my church and a little problem with the discipline in my school. So I ran away from discipline. And to show you what a smart teenager I was, I ran into the army to get away from discipline. <laughs> it really wasn't one of my smarter moves, I'll tell you. And I did very well in the army. I was just out of high school and golly, I got onto things real fast, became an instructor. But I got kicked out when I was 17. Because, you see, the first night that I was in the Army, I went downtown with the rest of the men. And I went into the beer parlor with the rest of the men. And I had some of that beer. And man, oh man, it was something else. I became a good conversationalist. Somebody said something I didn't like and I got muscles. <laughs> Told them where to head in. We went dancing, and you should have seen me. My God, I was Canada's own Fred Astaire. For the benefit of the young ones, he was a great dancer. <laughs> then I took a gal home, and I was Clark Gable and Charles Boyer, the great lovers of those days, all in one. But the next morning, I was that scared little boy that had come in the, mo the day before to join the Army. But every night, I could be what I wanted to be because I would go with the guys to be what I wanted to be. And I just loved that booze. When I was 17, as I said, I got kicked out. <laughs> and I went back home and I got a job in an aircraft factory. And I got too much responsibility. And once again, I became restless, irritable, and discontented. 
And I ran once again because I didn't like responsibility. And I ran back into the Army. Told him I'd never been in before, and this time I was a genius. Became an instructor immediately. Got recommended for my commission. Loved to stand here and tell you that I was an officer in the Canadian Army. But I got kicked out when I was 18. <laughs> and I went back home and I got a job in a newspaper selling advertising. Great job. But once again, I got responsibility, and I, I got restless, irritable, discontented, and I ran once again. And I ran into the Navy. <laughs> I, I really wasn't too swift. I got recommended for my commission, and I <clears throat> went away for officer's training. Got married at the same time, 19 years old. Still married to that same gal, incidentally. I know that's not popular in California, but... <laughs> I call her my current wife just to keep her in shape. <laughs> I'd love to stand here and tell you that I was an officer in the Canadian Navy. But I got kicked out of officer's training. And when I was out there looking at the... Sh big ocean today and I saw a big ship out there I uh, it seems that an officer didn't appreciate me telling him what to do with his ship <laughs> when I looked at that ship believe me it's an imp absolutely physical impossibility <laughs> to do with that ship what I told him to do with it <laughs> but I didn't get, get kicked out of the Navy I just got kicked out of, of officer's training and I became a gunner on a merchant ship and I sailed all over the world, and I got drunk all over the world. Didn't think there was anything wrong with me, because everybody was doing it. Everybody that I chummed with, that's it, was doing it. And you know, I sailed with a lot of your people in the South Pacific. As a matter of fact, you owe me a great deal of that gratitude or something, but you have never, ever mentioned it to me, and it hurts me deeply. <clears throat> we were down in Australia... On a, with our merchant ship and we were unloaded and one of your ships got torpedoed with a load of tanks that was going into New Guinea and the government ordered us to take your tanks into New Guinea and we'd just taken a a load of whiskey down mostly for your fellas and uh, and we neglected to unload all of it <laughs> and and we went up to New Guinea with your tanks and we got I don't mean your drunk tanks, I mean your tanks that you fight with. And uh, we unloaded them. Those Japanese people were a little narrow about that. They were shooting at us and trying to torpedo us and everything. But we got coming back, got the tanks unloaded, and we're headed back to Australia. And our own ships came out to meet us. Well, by this time, we're celebrating and everything. And, and we thought it was the Japanese aircraft coming back. And so we started to shoot at them. And suddenly the captain realized it was our own aircraft we're shooting at and he got really panicky I don't know why we weren't hitting him <laughs> but I have to visualize this here's the captain up here and I'm down there in charge of this big forward gun I was always in charge of something and uh, and he he had to stop us firing because we we're firing our own ships on, on aircraft and so he screamed down <laughs> through this big megaphone and went all through the ships and he hollered down, Cease fire! 
I kept the war going for another couple of days. <laughs> he, he, he said if I'd have got one of our own ships, I'd have been a Japanese ace. <laughs> but you've never, ever, you know, given me any credit for that. And I know one day, if Clinton can just hang in there... <laughs> He may recognize me. <clears throat> but anyway, I, I uh, got back home from the, from the war, and uh, I had a beautiful little girl who was 20 months year old, and, and uh, I didn't know anything about being a husband. I didn't know anything about being a father, because this all happened while I was away. Faye was born while I was out at sea. And uh, so I, I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know really anything about anything except drinking. And so I started getting jobs and losing jobs, and, uh, you know, it, it was real bad. And, and Babe was always, seemed to be a little narrow about these things, and she was always preaching to me what I should do and what I shouldn't do. And uh, finally, the last two years of my drinking... I had learned to gamble when I was in the service, so I was also a gambler. And then I became a fighter. And the last two years of my drinking, I had 17 fights, 17 knockouts, and I lost them all. <laughs> and I wasn't fighting in any ring or anything, I was just fighting <laughs> in the bars and stuff like that, and that's how I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. One night I was at a hockey stag. That's where you make money illegally to support your hockey team. Poker games and all this stuff, selling booze. And, and I was looking after the... I don't know why they would put me in charge of the bar, but they did. And finally I left that job and I got into the poker game. And I did an unforgivable thing. I got caught cheating. <laughs> and it's okay to cheat maybe in a poker game, but don't get caught at it. <laughs> Especially by the guy that caught me. He was a, he'd been a commando in the Canadian Army, and uh, he and I had a fight. Or I should say, he had a fight. <laughs> he hit me, and I hit the cement floor, and I got up, and he hit me, and I hit, hit the cement floor. We did that a whole bunch of times. <laughs> and finally, I just stayed down, because I couldn't get up, <laughs> you know. And they took me off the hospital. And I was in hospital for five days. And to show you how popular I was, not one soul came to visit me. Not even my family. I just lay there and finally the doctor came by after five days. And he told me that he had done everything he could do for me. And he said, the rest is up to you. And I said, well, what do you mean, doc? I'd been in the service with him. And he said, well, when you were in the service, I think you were alcoholic then. You should have had your commission. You didn't get it. And he said... Things uh, haven't improved since you got home. So he said, I would suggest that you stop drinking because I think you're alcoholic. And I said, well, what will I do? And he said, well, I would suggest that you join Alcoholics Anonymous. And he left me there. I lay there all day long thinking about that. That night, a couple of guys, uninvited, <laughs> came to see me. And... I knew both of these fellas, and they were dressed up, and they were clean, <laughs> and they weren't usually like that when I saw them. And here they were in their 
face was shining and clean and their eyes were nice and bright. And they told me about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think it's so important when we go to see somebody that we look good. We don't have to have an $800 suit on or anything, but just that we look good. Because these guys, I knew them when they didn't look so good. And here they're looking good. And they didn't tell me that I had to stop drinking. They told me what they did to stop drinking. One of the guys, I would swear he was the sloppiest drunk in all of Canada. But this night he's sober and he's looking good. The other fellow, I'd been in the service with him. And he got sent to a penitentiary for robbery with violence when he came out of the service. And he found Alcoholics Anonymous in our penitentiaries. And they told me about this deal, and they, they said, would you like to come to a meeting? And I and to get rid of them, I said, fine. And they said, well, tomorrow morning, <laughs> we are having an emergency meeting for you. <laughs> I come from a town of 35,000 people. In 1952, there were 15 people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they told me to be at a certain restaurant at 10.30 the next morning. Now, I know why I became alcoholic. I became alcoholic because I'm a Protestant. <laughs> Don't laugh, you Catholics. Uh, I lived in a Catholic community. Grew up in a Catholic community. And they treated me bad. They called the bingos in Latin so I couldn't understand them. <laughs> And here I am in a Catholic hospital with a bad check for a private room. And this little nun, she's just not going to let me out of there until I pay for that check. And also because I was Protestant. And uh, that's what I thought anyway. And so the next morning I phoned the only person in the world that I might, my credit was any good with. And that was my bootlegger. He was a taxi driver. He came up and bailed me out of the hospital. Probably had he known what I was going to do, he would have left me there. <laughs> because I haven't had to give him any business since then. Poor guy died of a broken heart. <laughs> and, and I didn't want to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was something like <clears throat> the three alcoholic rabbits. I don't know whether you have alcoholic rabbits or not down here. Back in Canada, we have them. I don't mean ordinary Saturday night drunk rabbits. I need real, genuine alcoholic rabbits. And there were three of them. And they were called Foot and Foot, Foot and Foot, Foot, Foot. <laughs> and Foot, Foot used his phone and Foot, Foot, Foot. And he said, I'll expect old Foot and we'll go down to the bar. So Foot, Foot, Foot and Foot, Foot. They'd pick up old Foot and they'd go down to the bar. One night, Foot, Foot was sitting there talking, talking to Foot, Foot, Foot. And Foot, Foot, Foot said to Foot, Foot. He said, where's Foot? And foot, 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 he's here just a minute ago, we went outside, so foot, 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 and foot, foot, they went outside, they found poor old foot, and foot was dead. So foot, foot, said to foot, 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 he said, what do you think we should do with foot? And foot, 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 said to foot, foot, he said, well, we should take him to the funeral home. After the funeral, foot, foot, said to foot, 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 what do you think old foot died from? Foot, 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 said to foot, foot, he said, well, I think he was alcoholic. And so foot, foot, said to foot, 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 he said, do you think we're alcoholic? And foot, 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 said to foot, foot, he said, we're drinking quite a bit. So foot, foot, said to foot, 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 he said, do you think we should join Alcoholics Anonymous? And foot, 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 said to foot, foot, might as well, he said, we got one foot in the grave anyway. 
<laughs> I'll cast her before the night's out. <laughs> and that's what I thought. I thought you had to have one foot in the grave before you came to this thing. So anyway, we went to this meeting in this in this restaurant, and I wish you'd seen me that morning. I had blood all over my clothes from this fight I'd been in. My wife didn't come to see me. She didn't bring me a clean shirt. My shirt was torn, blood on it. It was cold outside. I had my overcoat collar up. And these three guys, or these guys started to arrive. There were three guys there when I got there. The rest of them started to arrive. And in those days, if you got alive when they all came. <laughs> and, you know, you, you couldn't sh- take a chance on losing somebody. And I liked them. I knew every one of them. And I liked them. And they told me about this thing, that there was going to be a big meeting that night, a big meeting. Can you imagine if they ever, ever knew that there was going to be something like this one day? There's going to be a big meeting tonight. We're going to have a social. The wives are going to come. There weren't any ladies at that time in AA in our town. And so <clears throat> they said they were going to take me home. And I said, no, 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 I can go home by myself. For you see... I'd been away a few times before for four or five days. <laughs> and the babe, I call her, and I also call her Mrs. I Want Money, she, 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 uh, she was kind of narrow about me staying away. And if I brought somebody home with me, she'd run them off. And I thought, my God, I got some really good friends now. I don't want her to, you know, get rid of them. But anyway, fortunately for me, uh, Al-Anon wasn't in place in our town at that time, and, but some of the ladies used to go on, on one of the nights, go to a mixed meeting, to an open meeting, and uh, they'd been up to see her, a few of the wives, and they'd told her what I was trying to do. And I walked in that door scared because I thought, man, oh man, I shall embarrass me with my friends. But she kissed me and said, I think everything is going to be okay, hon. <laughs> Nothing else that kept me in AA for that day because she'd changed already, you know. <laughs> boy, oh boy, <laughs> this is good stuff. And that night we went to a, Saturday night we went to an AA deal. And we got there and, and they had a social, first of all, and they played games. And there were old people there. My God, they're 40, 50 years old, you know. And I thought, oh, God, I wonder if I did the right thing here. It wasn't my idea of a Saturday night, I'll tell you. And then they played pin the tail on the donkey <laughs> on a Saturday night. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the end, you know. <laughs> but then I looked and everybody was having a good time but me. Even the babe, she was just in there just having a great time. And then they had a meeting. I can remember the first guy standing up, and I knew him. He was a salesman. He said he'd been sober for a year. And I sat there in the back, and I thought, liar, you know. I know you. You go out and drink. You're a traveling man. You would drink and come in and tell these donkeys you're sober, you know. And, and after the meeting, a couple of the old-timers, they took me. They were sober about 18 months probably, and... They took me in another room and they said, now tonight, in those days they used to say there's no must in Alcoholics Anonymous. They said, you've heard tonight that there's no must in AA, but tomorrow morning they said there's a meeting here, a breakfast meeting at 8 o'clock and you must be here. 
And I'm glad they talked to me like that. Because, you see, that's the language that I understood. And I can remember that night, little Bobby Motherwell, he's now gone to that great roundup up above. Little Bobby said to me, he said, Cease, we have two meetings a week. Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I want you to make a decision right now that you're going to go to two meetings a week and then you don't have to make a decision each meeting. You know, that made sense. <clears throat> Mind you, I didn't think I was going to stay this long. But, <laughs> but I did that. And I, true enough, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, that's my meeting night and I'm still going. Bobby showed this book to me and he said, uh, I want you to buy a big book. And as I said, I'd been in that poker game and I'd almost lost my life as well as my money. And I said, Bobby, I haven't got any money. It was $3.50. And he said, buy it on the installment plan, 50 cents a week. <laughs> so I bought my first book, 50 cents a week. And man, oh man, did I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I stayed sober, just had pats on the back. They would say, you're doing a fine job, young fellow. You know, and God, it was great. We'd go to deals in other little towns and meet with, you know, 10 or 20 other people. And we went to these deals all the time, and they would say, gee, we heard about you, you're doing a good job. And, <clears throat> and I was really, really, really happy. But then a horrible thing happened. <clears throat> Some younger members came in. <laughs> and they walked right by me and talked to the older members. The older members walked right by me and talked to the newer members. And I don't care whether you're an Al-Anon, Alateen, Alatot, Alcoholics Anonymous, whatever you're in. One day you're going to become a middle member like I did. And it's a bad thing. It's just like being in a hole in a donut. You're nothing. They just walk right by you. <laughs> and I thought, by golly, I'm going to go out and practice a bit again and come back in and get the treatment again. But thank God I didn't have to do that. We had a guy by the name of Ernie Sear who's now gone to a, the Great Roundup. And we have discussion meetings where, <clears throat> where I come from and and Ernie said that we asked him to chair the meetings for three months. And Ernie said he'd chair the meetings for three months if we would do something. We said, what's that? And he said, I want us to do the steps as a group, not study them. I want us to do them. And so we thought we'd humor old Ernie along, and so we said we would. And that's the story I want to share with you tonight, the story that I've had since coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. We went to the first meeting, 16 of us, Earl Ernie in a chair, <clears throat> and Ernie told us all to bring our big books, sent us home and told us to read the first 58 pages. We still do that, the same system, but now it's 164 pages. He told us to read the first 58 pages, and of course that puts in, puts into how it works. And you may think, well, what, what's the big deal about that? The big deal is we thought Ernie was going to ask us questions about them. <laughs> and I'd phone my sponsor. Incidentally, I have the same sponsor that I got that first night. He, he's 84 years old, sober 10 days longer than me. <laughs> And I thought he was an old-timer. <laughs> and I'll tell you, like, but he always figures his sobriety by the days. And he announces how many days it is. And he neglected to count the leap years, so now I'm ahead of him. 
<laughs> I got two days more than he is, I think. But Elmer and I would phone each other and we'd say, I wonder what old Ern's going to ask us. And we really studied that book in the first 58 pages. And we'd get something really interesting. We'd say, what do you think if he asked this? And then we went back and guess what? He didn't ask us anything. He said, everybody read the big book, what I asked you to do. And everybody put their hands up. And then he said, okay, tonight we're going to take step one. Where well, we admitted we're powerless over alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. And he, <clears throat> the 12 by 12 wasn't out yet then, and so he, he started to uh, take it out of the big book and showed us where the first step was. Of course, Bill's story was in there. There's a solution. And I didn't even know there was a second part to the first step. I knew that I was powerless over alcohol, but I didn't know that I had an unmanageable life. I had an unmanageable life as far as money is concerned. Now, many people think that that's when you're drunk. But I had an unmanageable life sober. <laughs> if any, you give any dear old Presbyterian or even Catholic woman a, enough of that flit that I drank, and I guarantee she'll have an unmanageable life. And I had an unmanageable life as far as money is concerned. I spent money like a drunken sailor because I was suffering from big shot ism. I wasn't a big shot, I just had big shot ism. Now, I, I know you people down here in California won't even know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> but I had financial problems. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous owing $6,200. I know that's not a lot of money, probably you got that in your hip pocket. But if you put that into inflationary terms, it's probably, what, 35000 40000 maybe, from 1952? And I didn't owe it for anything. I just owed it. <laughs> you know, I came by way of a poker game, so uh, some of it I owed to strange people. And so I got a really, really good job after about uh, nine months in Alcoholics Anonymous. My boss took me to the bank because he got sick and tired of people phoning the store to inquire about this money and he took me to the bank manager and he endorsed my note for $6,200 and I don't know why they did it like this but he and the bank manager I gave them a list of whoever I owed money to they wrote the checks out they had me sign them and they sent them out I don't know why they did it that way <coughs> guess what three years later he bailed me out for $7,500 well, you see, I had an unmanageable life as far as money is concerned with big shot ism. I would walk into a store and they'd say, this is $369. The great one here would say, you got something for about 700 You know, I really suffered from that disease. And I know that none of you have ever had that. But if ever you sponsor somebody that may be down here from Canada, tell them that you heard a Canadian speaker and he had that same disease. And... And he got rid of it. <laughs> and I tell you what, I, I, I just had to take a look at that. I had to take a look at a lot of other things in the unmanageability of my life. But in that step one, I learned about that. The next week, Ernie told us to think about all the things that where we've got an unmanageable life. Next week, we went back. He asked us how we did with it. We all shared with him. And he said, tonight, we're going to take step two, where we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It was before treatment centers, and they used to send us off to 
to mental institutions if we had an alcohol problem. And so I said to Ernie, restore me to sanity. I've never been in a mental hospital. So I said, how can I come back from somewhere I haven't been? And Ernie said, it's not that you're insane. It's the fact that you've got negative thinkancies. And this program will allow you to get positive thinking. I was, you know, I don't know whether down here you've ever done this or not. Where you sit around four or five of you trying to help somebody that's not there. (laughs) And you say things like, I heard. (laughs) Did you know? (laughs) Oh, my God, it's awful. You know, I was that kind of a guy. I could do that all day long. And Ernie said, we want to restore you to sane thinking. I was something like a negative barber. Guy sitting in the barber chair one day and he said, I want a haircut to last for three weeks. Barber said, why three weeks? He said, I'm going on vacation. The barber said, where are you going? He said, first of all, I'm going to London, England. The barber says, you're not going to London, England. He said, I am. He said, do not say I am. He said, I wouldn't go there if I were you. He said, I've never been there, but I heard. (laughs) Lousy place to go, too many people, too many cars. The guy said, look it, I don't care if I don't like it there. I'm going on over to Paris. The barber says, you're not going to Paris. He said, I am. He said, you're not. I said, I am. He said, we wouldn't go there if I were you. He said, no, I've never been there, but I heard. He said that they really fleece the tourists over there. The guy said, look, it just cut my hair. He said, if I don't like it there, I'm going to Rome. The barber says, you're not going to Rome. He said, I am. He said, you're not. He said, I am. Wouldn't go there if I were you. He said, a lot of Catholics over there. The guy said, look, I don't care. I'm a Catholic. Yeah, but he said, I heard different kind of a Catholic over there. Three weeks later, the guy come back, slid into the barber chair. The barber says, how was your trip? He said, it was good. He said, it wasn't. He said, it was. He said, you didn't go to London. He said, I did. He says, you didn't. I said, he did. He said, I'd love to stay there long enough to want to get on to Paris. He says, you didn't go to Paris. He said, I did. He says, you didn't. He says, I did. He said, I'd love to stay there long enough to want to get on to Rome. He says, you didn't go to Rome. He says, I did. He says, you didn't. He says, I did. As a matter of fact, he says, I got an audience with the Pope and the, and the Bible says, you didn't. He says, I did. He says, you didn't. And he says, you'll never believe what happened. I bent down to kiss the Pope's ring, and you'll never believe what the barber, what the Pope said. And the barber says, what? And he says, where the heck did you get that lousy haircut? <laughs> and I was something like that. You know, I didn't know, but I'd heard. So, I had an unmanageable life. Step two, I found a manager. Went home satisfied. Next week we went, Ernie asked us how we made out in step two. We said, I'll share it a little bit. And he said, okay, this week we're going to do step three. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Someone said, well, I, I can't find this God. Ernie said, don't, don't go looking for God. God's not lost. He said, what it says is, made a decision. Made a decision. That's all we ask you to do. And he read it to us, what we're like, you know, when, when she finished reading tonight, where it says we're now at step three, right under that one, the, the ABCs. And if you read that, you'll find out what you're like. And who, I don't know who would like to be that way. Now, I know it's tough to make a decision. There's nobody wants to make a decision. I heard a story about an old poacher. I know in California you don't even know what a poacher is, but back home we have them. They fish out of season. They do whatever they want. And this this old poacher, he was fishing all the time. And a new game warden came to town dressed in old overalls. He went down and made friends with this old poacher. Two o'clock in the afternoon, the old poacher said, I'm going fishing. 
And the guy, he just made friends with him. We didn't know it was a game warden. He said, well, I'll, could, could I come with you? So the way they went out in the middle of the stream, they get out in the middle of the stream, and the old poacher stops the boat, <coughs> reaches over, opens a tin box, pulled out two sticks of dynamite, lit them, threw them into the drink, boom, up comes the fish, out comes the knife, start filling the boat, out comes the badge, and the old game warden says, I finally got you. And he's given the old poacher a lecture. The old poacher doesn't even bat an eye. Reaches over, got two more sticks of dynamite. Lit them. Handed them over to the game warden. The game warden sit there with two lit sticks of dynamite. And the old poacher says, look at buddy, do you want to talk or do you want to fish? <laughs> he made a decision, I'll tell you. <laughs> All it asked us to do in step three was make the decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood him. Not as we understand him. Some people say as we understand him. There's a difference between understand and understood. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Find out for yourself. But I went home and I, I hadn't learned to pray in front of my good wife as yet. So I went into the bathroom and I, I had to keep it real simple. I said, look at God. I made a bad job of managing my life. How about you looking after it? That was it. I had to keep it real simple because if I complicate things, believe me, I'm in trouble. Back home is a friend of mine that has a ranch. Another guy says, how did you get the name of your ranch? And he says, well, I wanted to call it Bar Q. My wife wanted to call it Susie Q. My son wanted to call it Bar Susie Q. And my daughter wanted to call it Susie Bar Q. So we called it Bar Q, Susie Q, Susie Bar Q, Bar Susie Q. The guy said, that's a great name, but where's the cattle? And he said, none of them ever survived the branding. <laughs> so just make the decision. Or you may not survive the branding, you know. Next week, Ernie came and he's got pencils and papers. And, and we said, what's this all about? And he said, well, I heard someone was going to take a step forward, but they didn't, couldn't find a pencil of paper. So here's a pencil of paper. And he took this big book. Now, I know there's lots of people who've got deals of how to take a step forward. But Ernie went to this conference-approved deal, and he showed us his book. And on page 65, it tells us how to do it. I'm resentful at why the cause and the effects of how it affects me. And he said, just go home and find that and do it step forward. And we took our pencils and papers and went home, and the entire group took the step forward. We came back, and I was so proud of mine. wasn't proud of the way it looked, but I was so proud that I did it. I wanted to share it with Ernie. Ernie said, no, no, that's personal. <clears throat> we'll, we'll tell you what to do with it. So back home, we have fifth-step study groups for, for uh, men of the cloth. And uh, next week, he said, we're going to make appointments for you to, to your fifth step. Now, I know down here, I hear people say they took their fifth step with their sponsor. Now, I'm going to share something with you on a book that I bought in the United States. So you'll not think that this is some, you know, propaganda I'm bringing down from Canada. It says on page 74, Rightly and naturally, we think well before to choose the person or persons with whom to take this intimate and confidential step. Those of us belonging to a religious denomination which requires confession must, and of course, will want to go to the properly appointed authority whose duty it is to receive it. Imagine that's the Catholics. And uh, it says, 
Though we have no religious connection, we may still do well to talk with someone ordained by an established religion. We often find such a person quick to see and understand our problem. I fifth step with old Elmer. He's a blabbermouth. <laughs> First of all, if I told him some of the stuff, he wouldn't know how to answer me anyway. But I went to a minister, Protestant, mind you, and I took my fifth step with him. He shared a few things about himself with me. He used to be kind of a orangutan, too, and we became really good friends. <clears throat> and then it told us that the minister knew what to do because he'd done fifth steps, knew what it was all about. He says, now do you know what you're supposed to do? And I said, yeah, I'm supposed to go home and take the book down from the shelf and read step six and seven. And you see, <clears throat> the reason that we don't want to take an inventory of ourselves, and I don't know why we don't want to, because I used to take everybody's inventory, but I couldn't take one of my own. And I find a lot of people in AA and Alan on that way, that they don't want to take their own inventory for fear they'll find out. I heard a story about a, a dear old society lady. She went to the doctor, and she said, Doctor, i got a problem. He said, what's the problem? Well, it's really not a problem. She said, i got gas on my stomach. But no problem. No odor and no noise, she said. <laughs> so he gave her some tablets. She came back the next week and she said, Now I've really got a problem. Bad, bad odor, but still no noise. And so he gave her some more tablets. And he says, Now that we've done something about your ears, we'll see if we can do something about your nose. <laughs> so... But you see, we just don't want to, we don't want to take our, our fourth and fifth steps because, I don't know why. I guess it's because of fear. And it says it's resentment, sex, and fear that, you know, cause this. I was, I was chairing a meeting, with, or speaking in Winnipeg, Manitoba one night, and I was talking, uh, talking about that everybody has sex problems. And I, I, I read something on page 69 about sex. And this, this lawyer was there from down in North Dakota somewhere, and he went back home and he was reading the big book. And he said to his wife, that old she is crazy. But he had page 96 instead of 69. And on page 96 he says, do not be discouraged if your prospect doesn't respond at once. <laughs> Search out another alcoholic and try again. <laughs> You're sure to find someone desperate enough to accept what you offer. <laughs> so you've got to be sure it's page 69 that you look at. <clears throat> anyway, we, we got into step, finished step five and, and now... Ernie told us now we've completed step five and we really haven't done anything. Can you imagine how I felt? I'd worked for five weeks doing this and then Ernie says you haven't done anything. You've just admitted you're powerless over alcohol that you have an unmanageable life. You found a manager in step two. You made a decision in step three. Step four, you took, found out what was wrong with you. Step five, you want to talk to another human being. But that's not really what it says in the, in the, in the big book. It says admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. 
And you know what happened to me? I went into the bathroom, got down on my knees, and admitted to God what was wrong. I got up to the mirror to talk to myself, and you know what? I changed stories from there to there. I'm capable of doing that. But a lot of people say you just have to admit to another human being, but that's not what the book says. This book I bought in the United States. It says, admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. And then it tells us about step six and seven. He says, now do we really want to get well? Where it says, you know, that we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. I found out that the problem with most of us is that we don't want to become too good too fast. <laughs> don't ever worry about that. I do this almost every Saturday night. I haven't met a saint yet, not even in Illinois. I haven't met a saint. No, we just haven't met them. They're just not with us. Just do what it asks you to do, to be entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. I heard a story about little Johnny. His mother caught him playing with himself. Uh, nothing wrong with that. It's all in the bestsellers today, and if, they weren't, if we weren't buying them, they wouldn't be bestsellers. But she says to little Johnny, if you don't quit doing that, you're going to go blind. And little Johnny says, well, can I keep it up if I need glasses? <laughs> and I was speaking at this deal back in Canada, and when I finished talking, there's a dear old lady, she looked like she was president of the Temperance League, and she's heading right for me, and I thought, maybe I shouldn't have told that story. And she got up and she says to me, young man, this is quite a few years ago, she said, young man... She said, I really liked the way you led us through the steps. I particularly liked what you said about little Johnny. I liked that story about little Johnny in the glasses. But she said, did you notice how many AAs were wearing glasses? So here we are with deck six and seven. <laughs> you got contact lenses, probably. <laughs> here we are with, you know, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, and then we humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. And in step seven, it talks about humility. And I wasn't long on humility, I'll tell you. I was the great one. And here it's telling me that I have to be humble. Ernie suggested that we get down on our knees to pray. I hadn't done that. Arbutus from Texas, an Al-Anon lady, says the definition of humility is the ability to stand and the willingness to kneel. Stand up for what you believe in and be willing to get down and thank God for what you've received. And I, I, I don't know whether that's the proper deal or not, but I took it and I thought that was all right. And I was in New York and I was listening to a guy by the name of Shy Walker. And he was talking and he was telling how he came out of prison and how he so much wanted to stay sober and how he worked in construction and he came home one night and he wore high top boots. And he said when he came home, by mistake, he just booted his boots underneath the bed. And he said the next morning he got down on his knees to get his boots. And he thought, by golly, 
I'm going to say a few words while I'm down here. And every night he used to boot his boots under the bed so that the next morning he would have to get down and say a few words. I don't know whether it works with high-top boots because I didn't have any at that time. But I know it works with ordinary shoes because I tried it. I don't have to do that anymore. I can pray whenever I want and I don't care who is looking and who's watching and I can get down on my knees because I believe that for me to be any humble at all, I have to get down on my knees. The next week we went on to step eight. Ernie said, we got to make another list. And I said, well, I did that in step four, Ernie. Ernie said, knowing you, Corgill, <laughs> you probably hurt somebody before between four and eight. And I had. He said, just make the list. So I made the list. And I became ready and willing to go out and do those amends. And believe me, making those amends, you know, it talks about at the end of Step 9 in the big book, it tells us the promises, and you know, all know them. <clears throat> we're at page 83 and 84, where it says, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we'll be amazed before we're halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past that wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook on life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We'll intuitively know how to handle situations we used to battle us. We'll suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Now I know that everybody has read that. Everybody knows what it said. I just wanted to show you I could read it without glasses. <laughs> Those are the promises. That's what we're entitled to. Little guy in our group says, don't jip yourself. Get what you're entitled to. And I believe that's what we're entitled to. And I, I've experienced every one of those promises. And I'm very grateful for all earning for putting us through the steps. Not to study the steps, but to do the steps. The name of the group that I belong to today is Do the Steps Group. Every 14 weeks, I am privileged with some helpers to do a step group. They come from other groups to go through the steps, not to study them, but to do them. Fantastic results. They were talking about prisons today when we're having dinner tonight. I was privileged to be institutional chairman, and I got way back after I was delegate. And I got to be really interested because the guy that came to see me was a guy that found Alcoholics Anonymous in prison. And I've been doing prison work since 1952. But one time, a fellow by the name of Jack, who was a television personality, he and I did 12 solid years, not in prison, but every Tuesday night, to put the boys through the steps. And you should see the people that were privileged to shake hands with the results. Because we didn't go up there and tell them anything about drinking. We went up, told them about those steps, and asked them to do them. And we had step groups. And do you know that the first step group that we had, 42 people in it, and we went, when they finished the step series, about three weeks later we went up and there was no meeting. There was nobody there. And we went out and they said, well, they've all been transferred to a minimum security. 
And I went to the warden and I said, why would you do that to us? And he said, well, they were, they'd become model inmates. And he said, we couldn't keep them here anyway in the maximum security anymore. They didn't deserve to stay here. They should go somewhere else. And I said, well, you could have left me a nucleus. And he said, would you have liked to pick a nucleus? He said, they all were good enough ceased to leave this prison. Now, isn't that a fantastic thing? Because they had done the steps. And I was speaking in Chilliwack, British Columbia, within the last couple of years. And you know that there were 11 guys came out. They called me the Truth Squad. From 18 to 25 years sobriety, continuous sobriety, that had come out of that prison. And those are the things that big old Ernie taught me to do. And he taught me about service. And I, I've been privileged to do that. Step 10, where we... <clears throat> I just want to share a little bit about step 9. I have a fellow that I sponsor, and he's helped me he's sober 14 years, and he his name is Jim. And he had done the best job I've ever seen of a step nine, except one step, one person, and that was his father. And he went one, one night to apologize to his father and make amends, and his dad, they, were, they used to be big farmers, and his dad said, Jim, I want to go out to the old farm tomorrow, will you come with me? So Jim said, I'll be with him tomorrow. And I'll make the, make my amends. Jim went to the show that night and he got it called out of the show. His father had died of a heart attack. And this just about killed Jim, the fact that, not that he had died, but the fact that he hadn't made the amends to him. And I, I, as his sponsor, I had to say, I had a, I said, Jim, you're going to have to go above my head for this one. And we got him a pastor that's very, very close to Alcoholics Anonymous. And the pastor took Jim out to the graveside and asked Jim to kneel down and make his amends. And Jim became a different man because he finally got everything cleared away, the wreckage of the past. A fantastic thing. And he could tell that story and have other people do it. And that's the big thing about doing the steps. You could share it with other people. And they say, how do you do this? You don't have to tell them about the book. You tell them about the book, but you tell them how you did it. Step 10, I will never, ever forget step 10, because when I was 10 years sober, I forgot who I was and what I was and where I came from. I'd been a delegate. I was everything. I was Mr. AA. And I became a Central Avenue big shot. And I used to go to the penitentiary with an attitude something like this. You know, these guys are sure lucky that the great one comes up here every Tuesday night. <laughs> I'd go to my own meetings. I never missed a meeting. I'd go to my own meetings. And they would say, you know, you lucky people, here I am. Some of you want a little counseling, maybe I can give you a couple of minutes. Isn't that sad? I was working for the largest ladies' wear store in Saskatchewan. And Saskatchewan, incidentally, is about three times the size of Texas. I just thought I'd throw that in. And, and I was working for this and looking after the fur department of five stores, and I was great. The big card, a big expense account, and I was great. And one day, the boss, for some reason or other, felt that the store was too small for the two of us. <laughs> and it seemed that he owned it, and he wasn't about to leave. <laughs> and he fired the great one. And I went out of that store after ten years with him, and I walked out of that store with an attitude something like this. They wouldn't last long now. The great one's gone. 
I want you to know they're still okay. They're still millionaires. It's all right. I went to Winnipeg, but before I went to Winnipeg, I went to see my cousin had come to see me from the coast. And she was in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I had some brand new threads on, and I went down to say goodbye to her, and I was with a dear old man by the name of Dave Murray. And I went down and stood up in front of Fern this way with my big egotistical way. And I said, well, kid, how do I look? And she said these simple words, and I want to share them with you. She said, you look really good on the outside, Cease, but how are you really on the inside? And I went away to this roundup with dear old Dave, and Dave didn't talk to me. He just thought maybe Cease is coming back to us. Now, I'd never been away. I never missed a meeting, but I got that attitude. I went into Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is about 600 miles where I live. I spent two days in a hotel room just with this book and with God, deciding what I should do. Decided to go in for business for myself. There was a dear old fellow there, gray-haired old man, by the name of Ross Marr. He's now gone to that great roundup. But the night I was leaving, he took me down to the station, and we had dinner, and I said, Ross, what's wrong with me? And he says, nothing, Cease. It's nothing you did. It's something you haven't done. You're not doing what you used to do. You're not doing the prayers that you used to do. You're helping people with the wrong motive. And he says, what you have is untreated alcoholism. Ten years sober with untreated alcoholism. And I said, do I have to go to a treatment center? And he said, no, you have to go back and do what you used to do with the right motive. And I went back home and went back into Alcoholics Anonymous. Never been away, but I went back with the right motive. I went to the penitentiary every Tuesday night and did what I was supposed to do, not asking for, and that's how you practice anonymity. Doing your own thing for somebody else and not be concerned whether somebody pats you on the back or not. A fantastic thing. And I have a little, there's not a night that I go to bed that I don't take a step ten. And I have a little prayer that my grandmother taught me, and I'm going to share it with you, but be careful when you say it. She taught me this prayer, please God, treat me tomorrow like I've treated everybody today. Bad prayer. (laughs) (laughs) But I try to say it every night, and I can say it most nights. Then I went on to step 11, which is such a beautiful step. Probably 17 more words in it than any other step, and I just figured that out my old simple way that maybe it's maybe 17, you know, words more better than most prayers, than most steps. And every morning, I go into a little room at home, or I go into a room, and I call it seven minutes of God. Sometimes it takes a little longer. And I have a little card here that I've taken out, put together, and here's the quiet time using the big book and the 12 by 12. Pages 86, 87, and 88. Page 63, the third prayer. Page 76, the seventh step prayer. Page 83 and 84, the promises. Page 132, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. Page 164, the last two paragraphs, and you know it's, we trudge the road to happy destiny. It doesn't say we gallop, it says we trudge. Page 449, on acceptance, and I would suggest that you go to page 452 because it tells us to have a relationship. And then page 99 of the 12 by 12 is in Francis' chair, prayer. Every morning I do that and I want to share something with you that happened many years ago. We have a, our oldest daughter has been sober for 30 years and she 
We gave Faye everything that she would want. Love, and we gave her material things. And you'll never believe what she did. She married a Catholic. An Italian one, or the worst kind. And they had a little girl, and she was named Anna Louisa. <laughs> and when I was down east one time, they're living just outside of Toronto. She was about three years old, not quite. She was all dressed to come home with me, and I took her home. And I was doing my reading, and and she knocked at the door, and Babe said, you can't go in there, honey, because Gramps is doing his reading. Should I have something to tell him? So I said, let her come in. I took her up on my knee, and I said, what did you want to tell me, honey? And she said, I want to tell you that I love you. And I said, I want you to know that I love you, too. That may not mean a thing to anybody in this audience. But you see, I was that hard rock that came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I couldn't give love and I couldn't accept love. And here I'm telling this little Catholic girl that I love her. You know? <laughs> she has a little sister. Not little anymore. They're both graduated from university. Her name is Chella Maria. <laughs> I don't know where they get these names. She thinks that Gramps knows everything. And why should I spoil her day? You know? <laughs> they went to Catholic schools, and I used to drive them, and the sisters used to say, Good morning, Mr. Cordell, you know. I know what it means when it says keep an open mind in the club rooms. You know, <laughs> drive your kids to the Catholic schools, I'll tell you. Got to keep an open mind. But <laughs> they have a cousin who's... Protestant. He's a lawyer. He, he's been to two international conferences. He's been many, many places with me when I'm speaking. Not because he's Protestant, but because he likes to travel. And uh, he's now a lawyer, great friend, and he and I get along really well. His mother, who was Protestant, but she got divorced from her Protestant husband, and she too married a Catholic. And they have a little guy. He's 14 years old. And his name is uh, Giovanni Anthony. <laughs> Isn't that a horrible name to put on a kid? And he's my buddy. Great hockey player, good golfer, all sports, good in sports. But he's got a positive approach. He says, he doesn't say you're coming to the game. He said, see you at the game. Called me Cease. And I try to be at those games. And it's just a fantastic thing to have a relationship with all of them. And I've said that prayer with every one of them. What we got to when they stayed with us, and we've said our prayers together, and I finished up with, please God, treat me tomorrow as I've treated everybody today. And you know that little deal in step 11? You know, we're sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for the knowledge of well for us and the power to carry that out you never know who's out there to get you sometimes before you get out of your house they get you Mrs. I want money I can be sneaking out the door and all of a sudden she can be sound asleep and she'll come pat a pat pat and she says I gotta have my hair done you got any money you know she's got her own money but she wants my money you know what I do just kiss her tell her I love her and I'm gone don't give her any money great thing but you know there's another story I heard about a poacher and he 
he was try his name was Ralph, but he tried to capture the the game warden's name was Ralph. He tried to capture this old poacher for five years, and one night he bedded down outside this old poacher's house, uh, old shack, and he thought I'll get him when he comes out because he's going to do something bad. Five o'clock in the morning, the door starts to creak open. He said I'm going to get him. The old poacher poked his head out and he said, "Want some breakfast, Ralph?" <laughs> Ralph got up out of the hay and he come in and he's having breakfast. He says, how did you know I was out there? And the old poacher said, I didn't. Every morning for the past five years, I've opened that door and says, want some breakfast, Ralph? <laughs> we got to be ready for it. <laughs> and you know, most uh, AAs with a lot of sobriety, have written books. And I wrote one. My group wanted me to write this book. And I finally got it finished. And it's a daily spiritual guide. And it says, the first page says, get up and pray. Second page says, get dressed. Third page says, don't drink and go to meetings. Next page says, do the steps in sequence. Next page says, get a job. Next page says, help someone else. And the last page says, pray and go to bed. <laughs> now, I haven't had a conference approved yet, but <laughs> I just want you to know I wrote it. <laughs> Probably for a small price I could sell some. But that's step 12. You know, it's such a beautiful step. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. The result of these steps taken in sequence. We tried to carry this message to the alcoholic who still suffers and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Having had a spiritual awakening as a personality change to me. No, the other morning when I got up at 3.30 in the morning, if I'd have gone into the bathroom and said, holy malarkey, I have to go to Monterey, California today. I would have been played out before I left the bathroom. <laughs> you know, I I said, Kelly, I've never been in Northern California. I'm going there. Isn't that fantastic? I've been invited to go there. And I got in the car and drove 100 miles to catch an airplane and arrived here. Chris met me at the plane and everybody's been great to me. Just one great life. And all I had to do was stop drinking and have a big mouth. <laughs> and this happens. I've been privileged to be in every state in the United States, including Hawaii and Alaska. Fantastic thing. Just because I quit drinking and did those steps in sequence. And then it says we tried to carry the message to the alcoholic that still suffers. You know, a lot of people run around looking for drunks. You don't have to look for drunks. We, we, we got more people leaving Alcoholics Anonymous than they're coming in. Start looking after the ones that we got here. Tonight, just look around. Look at somebody that maybe has their chin on their navel. <laughs> and go and tell them that you want them, that you need them, that you love them. Make them feel comfortable. The story of little Johnny, you come home from school, his dad said, we're a good boy today, Johnny. He said, No. He said, were you a bad boy? And he said, no. He said, if you weren't bad and you weren't good, what were you? And he said, just comfortable. 
That's what we want every member of Alcoholics Anonymous in the world to be, comfortable in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know what? That's what you have the opportunity to do. If you are comfortable, you have the opportunity to make somebody else comfortable. So let's never forget that, because this is Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and another thing that I've noticed, we tried to practice the principles in all our affairs. You know, the principles, they're all in the big book. Back of the big book, look for them. You know, step one is honesty. Step two, hope. Step three, faith. Step four, courage. Step five, integrity. Step six, willingness. Step seven, humility. Step eight, brotherly love. Step nine, justice. Step ten, perseverance. Step eleven, spirituality. And step twelve, service to others. We have that opportunity in Alcoholics Anonymous. But there's something I just want to share with you. I'm leaving early in the morning so you won't be able to tell me I talk too long, but I want to share this. I, I have noticed by reports that come out from our general service office that the seventh tradition, we see it practiced here a lot today, the seventh tradition has really not been practiced as far as Alcoholics Anonymous is concerned, where we're fully self-supporting by our own contributions. You look at any deal that shows that different provinces, different states are only maybe 50% of the people the group's contributing. That's a bad, bad thing. It shows that we are not responsible people. And I'm going to close with a story, and maybe it will make us all more responsible. It's a story of a young member, an Alcoholics Anonymous, that told an old member he's going to quit. And the old member said, well, why are you going to quit? And he says, well, I'm getting sick and tired of what they're asking me to do. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. They told me just to come. That's all I had to do. Now they want money for a birthday party. They want me to go to a conference. They want money for a gratitude night. They want me to send money to the assembly. They want me to send money to the general service office. And he said, I'm getting sick and tired of it, and I'm going to quit. And the old member thought for a while, and then he easy does it way. He said, you know, son, I don't blame you a bit. But he said, when I was very young, my wife and I were blessed with a bouncing baby boy. And do you know, they told me that three could live as cheap as two. The morning that child was born, he started costing me money. I had to leave the mother in hospital and the toys. Then he said he started to walk and they wanted a bicycle for him. Then he said the tricycle wasn't big enough, they wanted a bicycle. And then he went into high school and he really started to cost me money. Bicycle was no good, he wanted a motorcycle. Motorcycle was no good, he wanted a car to take the girls out. Sporting good equipment, money to go away to certain camps, everything. And he said, I was like you, I was getting sick and tired of it. But then he said, in the final year of high school, that boy of ours died. And he hasn't cost me a penny since. Do what you like with that story, folks. But let's keep Alcoholics Anonymous live. Thank you and God bless you.